I want to um, begin by saying that, you know, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not uh, the kind of person who uses shock value, or nor am I really a pessimist. But what am I? What I am about to say, I say in all seriousness because I, I this is I just see this happening. I see it coming. And I want you to take my word seriously. Um, I, I believe we are uh, under spiritual attack. I believe there's a spiritual battle going on, and it has intensified uh, for us Christians as well as the church, not only Living Hope, but church across America. Uh, there are four battles, I believe, going on. The first is in the home spiritual battle in the home. You know, because of the lockdown, we're spending a lot more time at home, and that should be a time of intimacy, of joy, and for a lot of families, that is. But it is also a time, and I was talking to our speaker from last Sunday, uh, Alex Choi, of how COVID and the lockdown is not necessarily causing, but exposing some of the dysfunctions we see in the home. Uh, husbands are are behaving badly and wives are responding without hope or vice versa uh, that neither um, honors God. Another way in which there's spiritual battle uh, is in social injustice or social justice. As a response to the George Floyd um, death a little while ago, People have begun uh, determining that they cannot remain silent, and they're speaking up more and more ever. And in, um, in truth and with good intentions, they are doing so, becoming activists, but oftentimes they are doing so, they're lecturing others or uh, posting angrily. And people on the other side of the protests, alarmed by the anarchist uh, tendency that they see on the other side, with good intention are doing the same. And what is oftentimes happening is, and we see this sometimes in Living Hope as well, and we tend to be a pretty nice church, that what happens is that there is a trail of hurt relationships, even in small groups. And our enemy is uh, rejoicing in that. The third spiritual conflict that I see occurring is um, the, in the way that we are reacting to the COVID uh, virus. The government um, is trying what it needs to do in order to stem the spread of COVID. And their attempt has become so political in some way and the church has become uh, divided, although we should be uh, the, organi uh, the organization, we should be the institution that has a more united front and attitude, but we have become divided as well. Uh, just recently when the state has announced the lockdown on indoor worship, some very prominent churches have vocally have said that they're not going to abide by the government. They're going to obey God and rather uh, and not Caesar. Other churches have snidely said, you know, they're not loving their neighbors. And the enemy quietly 
rejoices in the division of the broader church. There's a fourth division and a, a spiritual conflict, and I'm going to talk about that later toward the end. But, uh, I, you know, we are in a great passage right now in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, because I believe uh, there are spiritual battles within this particular story, three in fact. And I believe they exemplify not only what happened there, but what is uh, happening in our nation right now and what is happening oftentimes in our homes and our personal lives. And so what, this is a, what I want to do. We wanna, I want to look at the story in broad stroke first, just like tell the story very quickly. And then I want us to go back and look at the spiritual conflict that is occurring in each scene. There are three scenes. Let's look at the story. The whole thing is set up in verses 1 and 2 where Jesus goes to the other side of the sea. That means that he's going to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. We find later on that this is uh, Decapolis, and this is the Gentile area. Uh, in modern day, that is Jordan, not Israel proper. And when he arrives, immediately he is met by a man who uh, from the tombs with an unclean spirit. And, this, the f and, and we are given the first scene or the back story in verses 3 through 5. He, that man, lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. The people from the city could not subdue him with chains and shackles, as the demons within him uh, gave him supernatural power, and unable to tame him, they drove him to the um, outside the city proper, and he was living literally among the dead. It says that while he was living in the tombs, he was crying out night and day, cutting himself with stones. It was a tragic existence. The second scene we find is that of the confrontation. When the demon-possessed man uh, meets Jesus, he runs and falls down before him. It was an acknowledgement that Jesus was superior, greater, and that he would uh, submit to the greater one. You know, in the initial reading, it's not, little, it's not real clear uh, who is speaking when Jesus is uh, talking to this person. Is it the man or is it the demon within the man? Um, but when asked, what is your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Um, first person singular and then first person plural. My name is Legion, for we are are many. The statement's a bit chilling as far as I'm concerned. Uh, a legion is um, about three or 6,000 Roman soldiers that made up a, a unit. It wasn't simply one demon, but a multiple uh, of demons who uh, abided and, and took over this particular man. And by the way, a demon is not simply a spirit, a morphous spirit, but a, a localized autonomous being. They're not omnipresent. They're just at one uh, place at a time. And for this man, many chose to uh, possess him. Uh, 
The demons beg Jesus not to send them out of the country, but rather a herd of pigs. And Jesus does so and allows them to do so. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The man is saved, but there is tremendous economic collateral damage. And the aftermath. Those who are caring for the pigs run back to town and they tell the story and the people come and when they saw Jesus and the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, it says they were afraid. Verse 15. Verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And instead of celebrating the healing, instead of worshiping Jesus, instead of uh, asking for more instructions or teaching, verse 17, it says, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's a strange response. On the other hand, verse 18, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So the people from the city begged Jesus to leave, and the man who had been healed begs Jesus uh, to follow him. Uh, he does not permit it, but tells him to go back uh, to his Gentile home and Gentile friends to tell them about him. Now, that's the, the broad stroke of the story, and now we're going to look at the three conflicts. The first conflict um, is from the backstory. It is the conflict between uh, demonic beings and human beings. Technically, there are actually two conflicts that are occurring between the two. The demons, um, first of all, uh, is in a conflict with the individual man. Uh, they have uh, possessed him, and they've overpowered him, and they're now in control of him. There's another conflict. The demons within that man are uh, in a conflict with the town people who tried to subdue him, bind him, but they were not able to do so. You know, um, you know there was a, a movie in their 70s. It was a long time ago, and I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade. I, I don't quite remember. And the movie was The Exorcist. Nathan, behind the camera, did you, have you seen that movie? Nope, right? You're too young, probably. But um, and I, I was pretty young, and uh, you know, if you watch it now, you, you think it's kind of silly. But back then, when CG hadn't been developed and horror movies haven't really matured, that movie was just scary. Uh, it was a story about a young girl played by Linda Blair who was possessed by demons. And a priest comes and tries to exorcise that demon out of her. And uh, the girl who was possessed, I mean, she would, the demons would speak uh, out of her mouth. It was eerie voice. And, and like her head would uh, contort. Um, she would levitate and she would have supernatural strength. And, he, and eventually, uh, I don't want to give away the ending, but it was frightening for me. Uh, I, I remember I, uh, uh, the friend that I watched the movie with, Gary, uh, he asked me, because he knew that I went to church, if uh, we can be possessed by demons. And I went and asked my youth director, is this true? Can we be 
possessed by demons. And, and my youth director said, not if you're a Christian. So I went back and told my friend Gary. And, and Gary said, well, can I go to church with you? Because I, I don't want to be hey, like Linda Blair. Um, you know, though it was a, a movie, much of it really uh, is similar to this particular story and the conflict that's occurring here. The conflict be uh, between demonic forces and human beings. Where, where demons are, are trying to occupy, control a human soul. I want to try to answer three questions that come up here. First of all, are demons real? Are demons real? You know, some modern social scientists would say that um, demonic possessions really don't exist, nor do demons, but the ancient people, unenlightened, uneducated people, would uh, assign a rational behavior to demon possessions. Though uh, modern social science would say, well, that's just mental health issues or chemical imbalances or response to uh, previous traumatic events. And that might be true for a lot of cases. But listen, we're going through the series and we're calling the gospel of Mark, who is Jesus. And you and I would say Jesus was real. Uh, that he was the son of God, uh, died on the cross. And what he taught was truth. And when you see the actions and the words of Jesus, it was clear, listen carefully, that Jesus believed and behaved and, uh, and interacted in such a way that demons were autonomous, localized beings with a will and an agenda. Are demons real? Jesus certainly believed so. And when we look at the New Testament, and when he heals, there's a distinct difference between disease and demon possessions. The second question that is oftentimes asked, uh, is asked like Gary asked, uh, can demons possess me or you? Well, um, Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 27 implies that a demon cannot... Um, possess the soul of an individual that is already occupied by the Holy Spirit. So which means that a Christian who has the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit cannot be possessed by the devil. It does mean that uh, someone who does not have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, a non-Christian can be possessed by the devil. But even a Christian who has the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit can be oppressed by demons, meaning... Uh, the demon cannot take control of your steering wheel, but they can uh, be on the passenger side uh, telling you, bothering you, giving false truth into you. What does oppression look like? In 2014, um, there was a young man who uh, committed suicides in the state of Massachusetts. There was no doubt, no argument that he uh, did all that uh, wasn't necessary for him to uh, take his own life. But young lady, his girlfriend, was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. And the reason being is that she 
uh, through relentless texts and phone calls, uh, ideated, berated, and encouraged this young man to take his own life. One of the texts that they read in court was this. I thought you wanted to do this suicide. The, the time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. She oppressed him. Demonic oppression is when demons uh, whisper into our souls thoughts that pull us away from God into irrational uh, behavior. It may be horrible. You can't keep living this way, curse God and die, or it can be pleasant or seemingly you deserve better. You don't need those people in your lives. Uh, they don't deserve to be forgiven. The third question that sometimes arises when, um, when we're talking about demons is this, why don't we see demon possessions more often? I mean, we hear of things happening in third world countries, but why aren't we seeing demon possessions more often in, in North Orange County? Well, um, I, I have a really a simple answer for this. And we have to kind of understand, and this is a big misunderstanding, we think that if God desires us to worship him, that we believe that Satan's primary goal is or agenda is for us to worship Satan, okay? But that's not Satan's primary agenda. Satan's primary agenda is not to, for us to worship him, but it's worship anything but God. It's to have other idols. So if you think about it, when Adam and Eve were first tempted by the serpent, the serpent did not say to Eve, uh, oh, come worship me, but rather did God really say that you can't eat? What he tried to do is to, to think that Eve uh, can replace God from her, the throne of her heart uh, with herself. You see, uh, Satan's ultimate goal is not that we would become Satan worshipers, but rather simply uh, distract us from the worship of our Lord. But the scripture is clear that there is an agenda. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen carefully, evil is not simply a, a, an ethereal kind of a force, but rather uh, there are autonomous beings, localized beings, supernatural beings whose intent is keeping us away from the love and protection of God and we are unable, like the city of folks, we are unable to, uh, to defeat him. First scene, first conflict, man against demonic forces. The second conflict we find in verses 6 through 13 is the conflict between God and demonic beings. Um, you know, it's clear uh, from the beginning that Christ was stronger than the legions. In fact, when when the man with the legion or the, the legion of demons meet, uh, that man runs, falls down before Jesus, um, and, and acknowledges that Jesus is greater. And then there's a negotiation that 
takes place. And even in the negotiations, uh, Jesus gets permission uh, for the demons to do what they did. You know, um, it's clear. And I don't think there's a lot of uh, debate within the Christian world that ultimately uh, God wins. The book of Revelation says so. And we, uh, we, 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 we see it all throughout Scripture. But I, I remember when I was um, in junior high school again, or, or when I was younger, when I uh, learned the story for the first time, the question that, that I had back then, back then was this. Why is it that Jesus allowed the demons uh, to enter the pigs uh, so that they can do self-harm? I thought that was kind of unfair to the pigs. I thought that was uh, a waste. Uh, and in fact, if you kind of exp- extrapolate that question, why couldn't Jesus simply annihilate, destroy the demons instead of letting them escape into the pigs? And in fact, why did Jesus allow the existence of the demons pre-meeting. And, and this raises the most fundamental questions that a lot of people have had throughout history. If there is an all-powerful, all-loving God, why does he allow the existence of evil? Right? That's the question. Why does God tolerate evil? And, and there are multiple uh, facets to this um, question, but let me give you just one part of the answer. In Second Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, it says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." So Peter is saying this: um, the reason God is delaying judgment. The reason God is waiting um, uh, to punish evildoers or evil is because of his mercy, of his grace, and he's waiting for repentance from sinners like you and me. If the question is, why doesn't God simply uh, annihilate, judge, punish the racists? Why doesn't God uh, destroy uh, those who do harm to other people? Peter's answer is, it's because God's looking at you and waiting for you to repent. He's having mercy. He's being gracious to you. And the problem oftentimes is that we see uh, the sin in others and wonder why God's not punishing them, annihilating them. In reality, God's looking at us and saying, you don't see your own wickedness. I'm waiting for you to repent. I'm having patience with you. That's the second conflict. And the third conflict we find in verses 14 through 20 in the aftermath. Uh, the, the people who were herding pigs go to town, tell their story. The townspeople come. 
And instead of being in awe, instead of worshiping Jesus, it says in verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's a strange response. They're not anti-Jesus. They're not trying to fight him or subdue him. In some way, they knew that he was more powerful than they. But it is a little bit illogical for them to ask him to leave. And why is it that they're begging Jesus to leave? And there are two potential answers. And the first is the most obvious. They're asking Jesus to leave because... Uh, when he came and healed this man, the aftermath, the collateral damage was 2,000 pigs dead. And they loved their money more than the man that was healed. They loved their profit more than uh, the Lord Jesus who healed that man. Uh, more crudely speaking, they loved money more than they loved God or people. But there's, I believe, a second reason why they were begging Jesus to leave. It's because um, they didn't want disruption. And they wanted to keep control. They could not tame the demon-possessed man. uh, But they were able to at least drive him out of the city. So that in their city, they felt uh, respectable and comfortable. The embodiment of evil was outside there in the tombs where the dead people are, but where we are, we're okay, we're religious, we're safe. And although uh, that man filled with evil is crying day and night, cutting himself, well, we're safe. But when Jesus came into the scene, uh, I believe they were afraid, it said, Because what if that same Jesus comes into town, comes into their work, into uh, their places of worship, into their home and into their personal lives and begin interfering, disrupting their comfortable, respectable lives. And they begged him not to disrupt their lives. On the other hand, Verse 18, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Um, He he is begging too. But while the townspeople were begging him to leave, this man was begging him to, to be with him. Jesus does not permit him, but rather he says in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And, and he did go away and began to proclaim in the uh, Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. You know, um, the question of who is the first missionary to the Gentiles, it's not Paul, who is oftentimes known as the apostle to the Gentiles. It's not Peter who uh, went to the home of Cornelius. And it's not Philip, Philip who taught the Ethiopian eunuch. But rather, the first missionary to the Gentiles is this unnamed man who had been uh, healed of the demons. Now, I want you to listen. Uh, there are many layers to the story. 
it tells us, the story tells us that demonic beings walk the earth and, uh, and, and have the ability to possess and oppress human beings. It tells us that Jesus fully believed in demons. It tells us that there are spir certain spiritual battles that are beyond uh, our, our technology, our psychology, and our medicine. It tells us that God will ultimately defeat all forms of evil, but he allows it for a time being because of his mercy. But I would ask this particular question. Where do you see yourself in this narrative? If this battle has been uh, uh, being, um, raged um, going on for centuries and millennials, in your home, in your life, how is it being fought? You know, you and I, I, I we cannot identify with Jesus or the legions. Very, very few people can identify with the uh, the man who had been possessed by the demons. But, listen carefully, all of us can identify with the townspeople. For having lived comfortable, respectable lives, believing that in the embodiment of evil had been uh, cast aside to the edge outside of the city with the dead. And we have no part in it, although we hear the screams at night. That we believe that we are okay and that when God incarnate comes, we would rather quietly beg him to leave us alone. Because we care about our independence and our freedom. We don't necessarily like others to tell us what to do and not to do. We don't want anyone to tell us um, who to date and not to date. We don't want anyone to tell us what we can drink or not to drink. We don't want anyone to tell us uh, whether we can worship indoors or outdoor. We don't want anyone to tell us uh, whether I should put something over my face or not over my face. In fact, we talk a lot about my individual rights and the freedom and what makes me feel comfortable. And I, I, I do kind of just want to say this. Um, I know sometimes we may complain about worshiping via stream, worshiping with masks on, worshiping outdoors, but it's still worship. We, we can't simply say to Jesus, you know, uh, can you leave us unless you can allow us to worship in a way that I feel comfortable. And perhaps when we complain, when we abstain, when we refuse to worship, unless it's in a perfect environment that we feel comfortable with, that we're like the, the, the people in the city who, who want to do religion in a comfortable way, but not in the way that Jesus says right now, worship me. I said that there were uh, three, potentially four, um, spiritual battles that are going on in the home, um, in um, response to COVID, and in, in response to racial injustice. But I believe there's a fourth and a more looming spiritual battle that's coming. 
in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says that there are like three forces of darkness. Um, there are demonic beings that influence. There's the, 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 the flesh and there's culture. You know, by and large, uh, the United States has been uh, a Christian culture and we have known that we have now just turned the corner. We are post-Christian culture. We're kind of heading toward where Europe was. And a lot of us, because of COVID, we uh, are looking forward to the time when we can come back to physical worship. But um, a lot of people are concerned and believe that when we eventually are able to regather, whether it be six months or year, um, fully, that the culture of America would have shifted even more anti-Christian. Not post-Christian, but anti-Christian. And that it will be even harder for you to publicly uh, be a Jesus follower. And it will be significantly harder for your kids as they grow up in the schools that they will go back to, to proclaim that they are, a, they are a Christian, they go to church, and they hold to Christian ethics. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. And I, I want to study for the fight, and if we don't, we'll become um, those who simply are complicit in asking Jesus to leave our town. I'm asking you, Living Hope, to prepare yourself. It won't happen unless you and I make a decision to do so. Can we do this at this moment? Can I ask you to take a minute um, to pray? Ask the Holy Spirit to, to make you realize that we're more like the demon-possessed man, unable to conquer evil in our lives. But that we need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're desperately dependent upon Him. And we need to beg that we follow Him. Can we take a minute to do so? Lord Jesus, I, I pray for the men, women, and child, children in this space right now. Would you, the Holy Spirit, convict our hearts that we would repent of our uh, laziness, our, our comfort, but rather that you would train our hearts, our minds to rise up to be Christ followers, that we would beg of you 
to allow us to be close to you. Lord, renew our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.